Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. The collapse of the I-40 highway bridge was a tragedy for all involved. But alongside this story of loss of life is another story, a story that you simply couldn't make up. It's August 2010, and the FBI arrested a 36-year-old man in Juneau, Alaska. He's picked up because he's got a number of outstanding arrest warrants against him for check fraud. He's been passing fictionous checks. And this fraud followed a trail that stretched from Alaska all the way down to Iowa. And by this stage, he'd swindled 224 people out of a total sum of $66,893.52. But this really isn't the story about check fraud. It's a story about a bridge failure. It's a story about a bridge failure that through a strange and weird route turns into a story about check fraud. And we're going to start this story in May 2002, eight years before the man's arrest in Alaska. And we'll start it on a towboat on the McLennan Care Arkansas River Navigation System, which is near Weber's Falls in Oklahoma. And this navigation system is essentially a canal with the usual locks and other stuff you'd expect to find on any normal canal. And this towboat, called the Robert Y. Love, is making its way down this navigation system and it's pushing two barges. Now these barges are 297 feet long, so about 90 metres long, and they're arranged side by side. So this is a pretty sizable arrangement moving down this navigation system. And on this towboat is a total of six crew, the captain, the pilot, and four unlicensed crew members who included a chief engineer, two mates, and one deckhand. Now on the night of the 25th of May 2002, the captain hands over control of the towboat to the pilot at 10.45pm. Then he goes to the galley for a snack, he takes two Bendril capsules for a sinus headache, and then he goes to bed. Captain then wakes up at 5am on the 26th of May 2002. He gets up and goes to the galley, and he gets himself a soft drink. At around 5.15am he goes to the wheelhouse, relieves the pilot, and starts his watch. He's now in control of the towboat. Then less than two hours later, at 7am, the captain has a 25-minute chat with a deckhand who's cleaning in the wheelhouse. And the captain tells the deckhand to go and wake up the mate. Now afterwards, the deckhand would say that the captain didn't seem like he was sick or anything was wrong with him at this time. So the deckhand goes and wakes up the mate, Then he puts trash in the bin on the stern of the towboat and he empties mop water into the engine room sink. And then he returns to the galley. He starts drinking coffee with the mate and they start having a chat. Meanwhile, back in the wheelhouse, the captain is navigating the towboat towards the Interstate 40 or I-40 highway bridge. Now this bridge spans the waterway, has multiple spans and it's a reasonably tall bridge. So the deck is supported about 50 feet or about 15 metres above the water on slender looking piers. And the navigation channel where the captain is aiming the towboat is between piers 4 and 5 of the bridge. 
So here is a bridge that's 15 metres high and the towboat is going to pass between two piers beneath it. So all very routine. The towboat passes a green navigation buoy on the water and it's travelling at 6.7 miles per hour. And at this speed it's going to take about four minutes to reach the bridge. The captain then applies a few degrees of his left rudder to align his towboat. And this rudder adjustment is the last thing he remembers. He said afterwards, quote, I remember looking out to the side of the boy and looking back at the bridge, and after that I don't remember nothing. Unquote. He doesn't remember anything further because he loses consciousness. He falls from his chair but not to the floor. He gets caught in a crouched position between the operator's chair and the control panel. He's unconscious for a while and when he regains consciousness, he's very disorientated. He notices he's fallen and he's in this crouched position and he notices that his head and arm are wet from a soft drink he'd placed on the console. He gets to his feet and looks out the window. And what he sees out that window is shocking. Now some nearby participants in a fishing tournament who are in motorboats see the whole thing. They see the towboat travelling outside its navigational channel and strike Pier 3 of the bridge. Portions of the bridge almost collapse immediately. A pier goes down, several spans collapse. This is now a bridge with a gaping hole in it. And then a fisherman sees vehicles shooting off the bridge and falling towards the river below. So he accelerates his motorboat and makes towards the collapse zone. Meanwhile in the galley where the mate and deckhand are having coffees and talking, they feel the towboat and barges smash into the bridge pier. It's like a big bang and the impact throws the galley refrigerators to the floor. The men run on deck and take in the same scene that shocked the captain. They see a gaping hole in the bridge high above them. Pier 3 has partially collapsed and the spans on either side of it have collapsed too. One span's fallen into the river, another's collapsed at one end still hanging from a pier and the other end lying on top of the towboat barges. Pier 2 is also damaged which has caused a partial collapse of another two spans. So in all 503 feet or 153 metres of bridge deck has collapsed into the river or onto the barges. And as they watch, the captain sees an 18-wheeler truck and a pickup shoot straight off the bridge and fall 50 feet through the air. He blows blasts on the towboat's whistle to warn those above, and as the mate watches this unfold with more vehicles flying off the bridge, he hears the captain saying, make them stop. Why won't they stop coming? But the vehicles continue to fly off the bridge and fall into the river. Up above, the drivers have no idea what's going on. They can't see the missing sections of the bridge until it's too late. As far as they're concerned, they're travelling along at 50 to 70 miles per hour on a normal bridge. Some drivers see vehicles in front of them, and these vehicles simply disappear. One driver only sees the missing spans when it's too late. He breaks but he can't stop fast enough and he plunges over the edge. Below in his motorboat, one of the fishermen arrives at the bridge. It took him only 20 seconds to get there. But in that short space of time, he sees at least one or two more vehicles fall from the bridge. 
He calls 911 and after the call, he sees five more vehicles fall from the bridge. Then he pulls out his handheld flare pistol and fires a flare up at the bridge. And he fires it in front of a tractor semi-trailer that's travelling westbound. The driver sees the flare, so he's alerted to the danger and he frantically tries to stop. He brakes. The vehicle slides towards the missing spans. It starts to jackknife. But it stops. Just in time. And now, with it parked on the bridge, it provides a warning to other drivers that something's wrong. But by this stage, as the captain and crew of the barge had looked on helplessly, a total of three trucks and eight passenger vehicles had fallen from the bridge. So 11 vehicles in total had fallen. And very disturbingly, while a few of the passengers died from impact injuries, most of the passengers drowned in their vehicles, unable to get free. There were 14 fatalities. The youngest was a three-year-old girl who died along with her parents. They'd been going to the zoo. So how could this happen? Well, the investigation looked at everything involved in this incident, but we'll just focus on some of the key points here. First, the captain. What happened to the captain? Did he fall asleep? Did he lose consciousness? Well, the investigation concluded that he didn't fall asleep. And they also concluded that he wasn't impaired by alcohol or illegal drugs. They also didn't believe that the two Bendrel capsules that he'd taken the night before had anything to do with the incident either. And they also investigated if he had experienced a syncope. Now, a syncope is when blood flowing to the brain is interrupted, and apparently this can happen for lots of reasons. But when it does, it can cause loss of consciousness. Now, when this happens, the victim usually falls over, and because they're now usually lying flat on the ground, the blood can flow horizontally, and the victim regains consciousness quickly. But this wouldn't have happened to the captain because of the way he got caught in the crouched position we talked about earlier, so stuck between the operator's chair and the console. But this isn't the reason that the investigators believe the captain lost consciousness. What they did find when they did further medical tests was that the captain had a very abnormal heart rhythm and this probably caused the loss of consciousness. And the investigators believed that a reasonable medical examination wouldn't have discovered this issue. So this condition was essentially lying in wait, hidden, and the poor captain was struck with it at almost the worst possible time. So the captain loses consciousness and the towboat strikes one of the piers of the bridge. Now, did these piers have any form of protection to guard against this sort of impact? Well, it would turn out that the bridge was constructed in 1967 and this was before the time there was any requirement to provide any impact protection. But in 1982, protection was added to some of the piers. And these protection cells, as they're known, are essentially structures that vessels will strike before they strike a pier. So these protection cells take the impact instead of the bridge pier taking the impact. But these protection cells were not placed at all the piers of the structure. They were only placed at the piers that were in the navigation channel. In other words, they were only protecting piers from where vessels were likely to be travelling. And in this incident, because the captain lost consciousness, the barge had moved outside the navigational channel and struck an unprotected pier. So Pier 3 wasn't protected, nor was it required to be able to withstand a horizontal impact of this magnitude. Now the National Transportation Safety Board, who investigated the fire, said that it might not be reasonable 
to even expect protection to be added at every pier of every bridge. And you can take the view that the authorities did a reasonable thing by trying to cover off the most risky impact locations when they protected the piers in the navigation channel alone rather than the piers of the whole bridge. Which brings us to the recovery. Now you can imagine the chaotic and disturbing job that lay ahead. And there were a lot of people and teams engaged in this recovery. There were seven local police departments, as well as the Oklahoma Highway Patrol and the Muskogee Police Department. Six ambulances arrived on the scene. There were 17 local fire departments, nine EMS departments, eight emergency management agencies and seven state agencies and seven federal agencies. Now, in all, 58 local, state and federal agencies responded. And immediately after the incident, people who were in the area did what they could. Some of the crew of the towboat launched a motorboat to try and save people from drowning. One of the tractor semi-trailer drivers was rescued from the water by a fishing boat. The rescued man said he could hear another man yelling for help. He too was picked up by another boat. And in all, three survivors were rescued from the water. And about two hours after the collapse, a Captain William James Clark from the United States Army, dressed in military uniform, arrived at the bridge. He'd obviously been in the area and he identified himself as a soldier from Fort Carson in Colorado. He told everyone he was in charge, took control of the situation and began managing the recovery. And over the next few days, he liaised with the local mayor and directed some of the recovery effort. He even directed the FBI when they arrived on the scene. He obtained rescue supplies from a local army surplus store in Fort Smith, Arkansas. He borrowed a pickup truck from a local dealer for use in coordinating the recovery. And he rented several rooms at a nearby motel. He even performed media interviews. And then, in the middle of all this recovery, things took a decidedly weird turn. The mayor, whose name was Jewel Horn, said that Army Captain Clark told her that a member of the army had died in the incident and his vehicle was in the water. He said the individual was Army Captain Andrew Clements. So we need to be careful here. This is easy enough to get confused. There was the captain of the towboat, who doesn't feature any further in this story. There's Army Captain Clark, who arrived on the scene two hours after the incident. And then there's Army Captain Clements, who, it's claimed, died in the incident. Now, the mayor said she found it really eerie when Captain Clark told her that Captain Clements was involved in the incident because he made this prediction before any of the bodies were recovered or identified. And in the recovery, they did recover Captain Clements from the water and they also recovered his laptop and briefcase. They were given to a Weber's Falls policeman who in turn passed them on to Captain Clark. Clark then is seen taking these to a local restaurant where he spreads papers from the briefcase out on a table. He then brings the papers back to City Hall and asks the mayor to lock them in the safe. The mayor refuses to do so. Then an argument ensues and Captain Clark insists he's in charge. Eventually the mayor just looks at him and says, quote, No you're not. Until the governor declares martial law, you are not in charge in this town. Unquote. And Army Captain Clark books into several rooms in a local hotel, which he says will be paid for by the US government. He puts do not disturb signs on most of these rooms and stays in one. And then he's gone. He just disappears from the rescue effort. 
So what's going on here? Why does this story of a bridge collapse suddenly feel like you're in a Bourne movie or a Jack Reacher novel? Well, there are plenty of conspiracy theories on the internet about this, and we're going to stay well clear of them and stay as close to the facts of this as we can. Now, no one really knows how Captain Clark knew that Captain Clements had died in the incident. And the most logical explanation I've heard is that he was actually following Captain Clements at the time of the incident, and that's how he knew that Captain Clements had died. But the real twist in this story relates to Captain Clark himself, the man who took control of the recovery. Because while he said he was based at Fort Carson in Colorado, it turns out that Fort Carson in Colorado had no record of him whatsoever. In fact, the entire US military had no record of him. Because Captain Clark had never actually been in the army. He was an imposter. And after he disappeared from the recovery site, the FBI turned their attention to finding him with a spokesman describing their efforts as a very intense investigation. And then Clark's uncle, a man by the name of Ian Clark, is interviewed by the papers and he says, quote, Billy, Captain Clark, wears his dad's clothes and uniforms and charges motel rooms to the US government. He has even charged hospital stays to the government, unquote. And it would come out that Captain Clark was not only not in the army, but he had prior convictions. He was a felon. And this imposter had turned up at a horrific incident scene in his army uniform and managed to bluff everyone for a few days and convince them he was in charge. It's an amazing story. And over the period of time that Clark was in control of the incident site, he had obtained, but not paid for, $464.26 worth of provisions from the Army Surplus Store in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which we've just mentioned. He ran up a $900 unpaid hotel bill for the rooms he rented. He'd borrowed a pickup truck from a local dealership. And very disturbingly, he'd been in contact with Captain Clements' wife. He'd spoken to the man's widow. And he was an imposter. And I should say that attempting to separate fact from fiction with this army captain's movements during and after this recovery is very, very difficult. And, and much of what follows is from newspaper articles which were appearing as the story actually unfolded. And some of these articles even contradict one another. So we have to treat some of the what follows with a, with a pinch of salt. But we do have some hard facts. And we have these hard facts because of court documents. Because the authorities did catch up with them. On the 9th of June, weeks after the I-40 collapse, he was arrested in Ontario, Canada. And when they caught him, he was still driving the borrowed pickup truck, which of course by this stage was stolen, and he was in possession of a fully loaded rifle, despite being a felon. So generally speaking, being a felon in possession of a firearm is a serious offence. And for all this, he was sentenced to 36 months for impersonating a federal officer and 70 months for possessing a firearm, with the sentences to be served concurrently. So he was sentenced to nearly six years in prison. And even when he gets out, he gets into more bizarre trouble. And this is in September 2007, when he's only out of prison two months. This time, he contacts the Russian embassy. He claims that he's US military and adds that he's special forces. And he claims he's part of a special US Army task force that's training to assassinate Vladimir Putin. So after all this, he ends up back in prison for another 21 months. Which brings us to Alaska in 2010. 
and U.S. Army Sergeant Louis Brandwin, who is a real member of the U.S. Army, is at a gun show in Juneau, Alaska. And he notices another member of the U.S. Army at this gun show. And this Army captain is talking to a vehicle dealer, and he wants to buy some vehicles for his guys, in inverted quotes, who are based, wait for it, in Fort Carson, Colorado. And Sergeant Brandwine wonders why this captain is buying vehicles for his guys in Alaska when his guys are actually based in Colorado. And then in addition to all this, he notices that the green berets insignia that this captain is wearing is clearly fake. And the captain is wearing a black beret instead of a green beret. So he confronts the man. And it turns out to be none other than William Clark, our imposter again posing as a member of the U.S. Army. Now, after this incident, the sergeant pushes this information up the military justice chain and it's brought to the attention of the FBI and they track him down and arrest him. Because Clark has been committing check fraud. And by this stage, he's swindled 224 people out of $66,893.52. So this bridge collapse is a tragedy. Innocent people lost their lives and the towboat captain was devastated by what had happened on his watch. But in the aftermath of all this, we have the story of the fake army captain, reminding us that sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. <laughs> <laughs> 